Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to all new, all different, Uncanny X's for Podcast, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-titled 80s expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. I'm Dylan. And I'm Nico. And guys, this is a pretty cool demarcation point. No, this is not a reset for the X-Men. This doesn't change everything forever. However, I am excited for this kicking off Secret Wars. It feels like it's been a long time coming. The X-Men have dragged their feet all the way to this line. It feels like Contest of Champions was just like a hot minute second ago, and now here we are, standing at the halls of greatness, as it were. And I'm about it. Dylan, is this your first time bringing the X-Men to Secret Wars and crossing the gateway? I actually haven't read Secret Wars before, so yes, this will be my first visit to one of Marvel's biggest events. And I really, really enjoy that for you, you've been using this read-through as an opportunity to go back and like piece together the narrative, kind of a similar way to what I did, except you come with your own unique wealth of knowledge. Like when we found out last week that you knew what the fucking Micronauts were. I thought it was embarrassing. <laughs> I knew what Team America was. Everybody's got their cross to bear. Jonah, I had a game plan for you going into this. But you had some pretty strong reactions as you were reading, and I can't wait to get to those. But how do you feel knowing that Secret Wars is the next thing? Do you feel like this is about to be a year that changes Marvel Comics? I'm going to say no, because I have no idea what Secret Wars are. The only thing I actually know what happens is that Spider-Man will get the symbiote suit outside of that. I'm pretty clueless, so I'm going in with this uh, full-fledgedly blind. Because that's a word and a phrase, full-fledgedly blind. (laughs) Dylan, I know you're saying that you haven't read it, but what do you know of Secret Wars going in? I know that it is very similar-esque to Contest of Champions, where there's just a handful of different Marvel characters from different teams, like Fantastic Four, the X-Men, and the Avengers, but... If I am remembering correctly, I believe there's also villains that are having to team up with heroes. Is is that right? It's sort of like throw everybody in a blender and kind of like divide them back out across 12 issues with four issues of surprise reveals. I read it when I was years old and I feel like I read it thinking everybody reads it. It's just a thing you read. But finding out that neither one of you know what it is cracks me up. I mean, uh, gosh, well, you know. I I am going to (laughs) say, I hate to sound like one of those people, but I do know what the secret wars were that were on the Spider-Man animated series. So if it's anything like that, then I know what it is. (laughs) You know, there's a a vague-ish-ness-ish-ness, and that's something I've long sort of stood by. I feel like Marvel 
kind of trades on the value of some of the titles that they've had over the years when people are like, oh, the Infinity Gauntlet, yeah! And what they made, really not the Infinity Gauntlet comic, which was really not the Infinity Gauntlet video game, which is probably what more people knew it from, but... The name has such power. There was Secret Wars, then there was Secret Wars 2. Then Brian Bendis did Secret War to kick off his new Avengers, followed by Jonathan Hickman's Secret Wars. Along the way, we've had enough wars and secrets to fill a DC crisis. But I think part of the difficulty trying to homogenize this story for me is the X-Men don't feel ready to bow out for a significant amount of time. All of the cool setup here, of which I enjoyed a lot, I don't know. Outside of giving me some cipher, this was not a great story for anyone. Especially not Kitty. No. We're going to be discussing Uncanny X-Men number 177 to 180, written by Chris Claremont, with art primarily by John Romita Jr., which is for the most part, yay, with help from Dan Green. There are some pitfalls to the art. I have some very specific issues with some of the depictions of Stevie Hunter. I think she occasionally looks a little bit verging on black caricature, and that made me uncomfortable. But, all right, guys, 177. Let's jump in like 177 did. Did anybody else have no idea what the fuck was happening? I didn't. (laughs) Pick me, pick me. I originally thought Mystique wrote this as a Mystique fanfic of her defeating the X-Men because there was no... No explanation for what was going on, and it was just really weird. And I was like, huh, something's not right and something's up, because there's no way the X-Men would act like this at all in the slightest. You know, it was like... I've read this before, and I read it all the time. Not Okay, well, that makes me sound like a crazy person. (laughs) So I've read it before, and I've read it more than once, and good times. But it's one of those issues where I I kind of flash back to the Cassidy Keep story, where I couldn't remember how Xavier kicked everybody's ass and his odds. Nightcrawler with the image transducer, right. But I couldn't, for the life of me, figure out the front of this issue. I was like, all right, okay, wait. Cyclops is on his honeymoon. I rem- I know Cyclops is on his honeymoon because of that awesome moment where he like sends that photo of himself hanging fucking dong next to his like half naked bride and he's just like hey professor look what a real man looks like look at these new boobies honk honk right i love that photo i that photo is the centerpiece of these four issues for me it was the weirdest thing i had to send a picture in our friend of the pod co-host of the pod group chat asking is scott an exhibitionist why then the hell did he send a picture of him and madeline in bed naked who took the photo? Yeah, that's the bigger question. Did they hire someone to take this photo? Did they? I mean, in, in this day, oh. in, in this day and age, there was not self timer selfies. So, what is going on? They hired a boudoir photo shoot. Got it. I can't remember if you mentioned it, but like you guys had both mentioned in our group chat, how many people did Scott send this to? Like, if you paid for somebody to take that photo, you know he sent this to more than one person, and who else got this photo? I hope that he sent, like, a few to Logan. (laughs) I just, like, really hope he did. Because the thing that I think gets me the most about this photo is it is, I mean, like, he's, like, Scott's naked under there, right? Like, everybody's sure. Scott is hanging it free downstairs, right? Scott free. Maybe it was secretly Sinister that took this photo, and this is like what started his obsession, but not really. Oh my- And that's- Hey, actually, no, there's something really powerful to what you just- Like, I'm having, uh, like a chrono skim moment, and I'm not doing a bit, I'm not being funny. Seriously, 
something you said about Sinister taking this photo, it's a funny joke, but there's been enough incidental reveals of Sinister plotted along the course of Scott's trajectory in life throughout his time before the X-Men and then during the X-Men and when he would occasionally leave the X-Men. And I guess I hadn't really considered that that's sort of what Mastermind did to Jean Grey at the start of the Dark Phoenix saga, that sort of slow stalk showing up everywhere, whether it was as the priest on the vacation trip in the X-Men classic stories. There was sort of this reinforcement of I'm watching you all throughout your life. And I think it would maybe be foolish to not hand wave this as, yeah, you know what? I bet Scott even said, let's do a totally tasteful photo. And the photographer with inexplicably loud teeth was like, no, instead, drink this water that's not GHB laced. And why don't you get naked in bed? And we'll do it that way. We'll do it live. And I think what happened was Scott was then, well, drugged and passed out. And Madeline is a plot device, so it really doesn't matter what happened to her at this time yet. She just was there to facilitate Claremont telling his male hero narrative, antiquated though it were becoming. And I actually just, I'm going to be real. I'm kind of like just like washing my hands of it. It was sinister. It was sinister <laughs> at a JCPenney photo lab in 1984 yes that is when we're talking about january to april 1984 as we sink our teeth into 177 to 180 i'm so glad i solved this mystery i'm done so what you're saying is mr sinister kidnapped scott and madeline into a jc (laughs) penny photo booth and made them take this photo got it i believe i also mentioned his clackingly loud teeth you were obsessed with this man's teeth. I need you to I don't, stop. I, I don't... Yeah, you... Dude, you don't get to get on our case for wanting to have Mary Sinister and then you get to talk about his teeth the entire time. <laughs> well. This story features the return of the as-yet-really-not-quite-there Morlocks. And I say it as the as-yet-not-quite-really-there Morlocks, because at this point, they're really, um, gross-looking. Yeah, they all kind of look like broomsticks. I don't like the Morlocks yet. No, No care zone yet. If the mutant massacre happened tomorrow, I'd be pretty okay with it. Oh my god. You are awful. Okay. You literally literally just said these people are ugly, so I want them to die. I think I more mean that they are a complicated web of enjoy pain and inflicting suffering on others because of a perceived lack of inclusion. The Morlocks actually aren't truly subterranean dwellers. Now, even if they are at this point, let's say all of the weird retcons don't come into focus yet. And we're going to isolate this in sort of like a really clear lens and we're going to say that the Morlocks at this point believe they are sewer dwellers for some number of years. The acts that the Morlocks take are very personal. The Morlocks may feel have may have felt driven underground by society but the acts that Mask and Callisto take are insidious personal acts of hyperaggression. Callisto seems fine, and I'm not trying to be gross, but I really do wonder how far Callisto would have pushed this Caliban Kitty marriage bed. Would she have sat there watching, picking her teeth with her knife? 
because that is kind of the visual I am getting from the grotesque that is this iteration of Callisto. Mask is content to let Kitty suffocate under her misshapen face. The Morlocks enjoy sending Leech, a child, into harm's way against a combatant they know can take anyone down, armed or not. Whether or not the Morlocks are hideous, sure. But at this point, the Morlocks are more guilty than they are victims. And I think that's an important distinction. And I think that's why what does happen to them ultimately down the line plays a contextualizing element in this story. They're made into these poor defenseless, oh, they were the Morlocks, oh. Well, Kitty Pride has been physically and mentally assaulted and emotionally abused by this random woman for her own pleasure to get back at another adult. The end of the day, truly, Callisto is endangering children. So, I mean, I was making a big funny ha huh, about the mutant massacre, but really, at this point, the Morlocks are disturbing to me. Genuinely frightening villains who are no better than Arcade. They believe that their rightful joy comes from what they feel it comes from and don't get in their way. I also want to point out something that Mass said. That's not what they actually look like. Mass makes all of their appearances look much uglier because that's what they think they need to look like because they're playing into that narrative of, well, the world already thinks I'm ugly, so I might as well be ugly. But uh, I'm pretty sure Mass can make everybody look passably human. So this idea that they're sent underground because of the way that they look, I don't really buy that. Speaking of Kitty's marriage to Caliban in these issues, I just wanted to point out that between these four issues, Kitty has a ton of outfits and literally the torn up wedding dress that she's wearing during the wedding is probably the best outfit that she has because she has so many hideous outfits. Yeah, because she dresses herself. Chris Claremont wrote Teen Girls well in the 80s, kind of. For real. Something that I appreciate is Kitty does have horrible fashion. Think about what Kitty likes. Kitty likes Star Wars. Kitty was a hardcore geek girl before geek girls were a universally... They're not even yet. I was about to say universally accepted concept, but the number of women that get harassed at a comic shop every week. And I feel like Kitty loves Star Trek and she enjoys Indiana Jones. And yeah, Kitty would be your friend that's really into Ren Faire tops. You know what I mean? (laughs) She would have so many peasant blouses and she'd always wear her Chinese slippers. And you would just be like, no, you clearly enjoy your own thing, but you're never, ever going to be like, ah, her fashion. You know what I mean? So we seem to have trouble telling this story linearly, and that kind of makes sense because the story really was all over the place. However, I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to kind of appreciate what's about to happen. Dylan, were you aware that Jonah thinks that Mystique is an incredibly ill-effective combatant? And, well, he laughs at her. Discuss. Yes, Mystique is a terrible combatant. She thinks that she can turn into somebody else on the field, get into a tussle with them, do the 60 Spider-Man meme of pointing at them like, you're Mystique! And then that's it. She doesn't really do much else besides firing a gun. I I, I love her, but she can't do anything. Jonah. Dylan. (laughs) Dylan, I need your help because I can't refute anything he says. It does seem like Mystique's grand plan is hang out with her wife drinking tea, talking about how not good a precog her wife is, and 
I still know why I love her. I still know why she's motherfucking Mystique, but help. I can't disagree with what he said because of how Mystique has been shown so far. I mean, she's only been shown in a handful of issues so far. But I will say that in the handful of issues that she's been shown in, she does have the brotherhood and she is leading them. I feel like for the most part in this time in history and comics, Mystique just needed to be the one calling the shots and telling other people how to be the combatants. And you have to be a combatant yourself to be able to lead others and tell them what to do. So just give her a break. (laughs) (laughs) By that logic, Charles Xavier should be in the battlefield on the forefront. Otherwise, he's not going to be a good leader. But I don't know my God. Mystique doesn't want to sleep with half her crew. So hold on. I want to bang. I like seriously, Charles. I am I'm all about your astral plane in these issues. There is something about the way he is like so sporty in those little shorts and he's just so like, oh, look at me. I'm so sporty in my little shorts. I, it works for me. He's serving Karima Abdullah Jabara realness. And as much as I really love the art on these, there's just some stuff that doesn't sit right for me. Yeah, Hottie Xavier, awesome, but it feels funny, but I think I would have liked these issues more if Paul Smith were still around. I concur. I really did appreciate Paul Smith's art. I think he did really wonderful characterizations of a lot of characters. But you know what else was beautiful? That image that Scott sent to his mentor of him basically deep-dicking Madeline. Oh, right. I was thinking, I feel like my favorite part was that part early on when Scott sent that photo of himself hanging dong next to his wife. I really enjoyed that part. Dylan, what did you think of Scott sending that lascivious photo to his mentor, Xavier? I just, I don't understand it. Like, I know a lot of comic imitates real life and comics imitate things that you might see on TV or something. Like, no. When have you ever seen this happen in real? When has anyone ever gone on a honeymoon and they send you a picture of them and their new wife in a heart-shaped bed while they're both naked? Like, this is 2020 goals. real life. So... You know, there were problems with the art. I actually don't really get what the fucking arcade Miss Locke stuff had to do with anything, and that was also a little bit out of nowhere. It kind of felt like the rogue Mystique Nightcrawler stuff was a little bit out of nowhere. But I feel like that's been building yeah, in the background we forever. Yeah, have a resolution for it. It was kind of, the seed was starting to grow a little bit, and it sprouted. It's not a full-fledged flower yet, but we got a stem. But I do agree, the plan Mystique concocts to lure the X-Men away from Charles so she can bring back Rogue... It was weird, disconnected. The whole beginning had nothing to do with nothing. And did we really need 10 pages of what could be summarized in one panel of Mystique telling Arcade, yeah, I need you to train the Brotherhood of Evil and make it so hard that they could die? All of that was just like a, a, a waste, you know? Oh, especially because what the fuck was the whole trapping Colossus in... That was also really weird and out of place because it only seemed like they set traps for Colossus and that was it. They didn't have a plan to do that for anybody else because that would have killed anybody else. I don't know what was going on. I thought it was cool that they had that in there, but the only reason I do think it was cool for them to show that they were all able to do that to Colossus was to actually show that, hey, Avalanche and Pyro and Blob 
actually can take down the X-Men's powerhouse and that they are a lot stronger than you might think they are. So it was nice that they actually wrote that the villains could be pretty powerful in a battle against Storm, Wolverine, Colossus. But yeah, it just, like you said, it kind of seemed like they trained for weeks and weeks on how to take down Colossus and that's it. Just about, (laughs) and they were pretty much subdued by Nightcrawler only. They each went on like a 1v1, but like, they all went down really fast, and they didn't really pose much of a threat. I did like the one-liner from Amanda, well, they're just very lucky that Mom hasn't taught me her death spells. Well, what good does that do you, Amanda? You don't know them anyway. You don't need to tell people that. Especially, that makes it worse. I'm a big Amanda fan. Love her, hope she wins, love her look, but... I I did not like that. <laughs> like this is not the best Amanda appearance, but I feel like Amanda officially just won an award for most consistent background character, other than Ileana, who transcended to the New Mutants uh, just before this. I feel like we haven't had a character like hang in like no, Amanda. No, not at all. I think maybe the closest would be Stevie Hunter, but even then, Stevie's Hunter role was severely increased with the addition of New Mutants. Amanda Sefton's been around for a very long time, I believe, was Uncanny X-Men number 98. That sounds about right. They might have gone back and changed when she first appeared, a la classic, but there's no question in my mind that Amanda Sefton has pulled almost 100 issues of X-Men yeah, she in. Does, That's she's fucking great. does well for herself, uh, even if she... I don't know, threatens to learn how to use a death spell much after the fact of when it was actually needed. My only other note about this entire thing, because I felt the mystique rogue was a little contrived, and I wish it happened under a much more non-force scenario. I know that's really hard, and I might be asking for a lot from that, but I really wish they had a real heart-to-heart moment that wasn't in that specific situation was the more domestic, the, the really sweet moments between Destiny and Mystique. You know, Dylan, I don't think we've ever gotten your thoughts on Amanda Sefton. I like Amanda. I am more familiar or fond of Amanda in the mid-90s Excalibur issues that she's in, and more so times where she ends up in the vacation spot that Magic came from. Vacation spot. Yes. Lovely. I like her, but I don't like certain things about her character, and it's certain things that I don't like about Nightcrawler's character either. The whole them liking each other just weirds me out. I don't like it. I've never liked it. It just weirds me out. I don't care if you're not blood-related. You were raised as brother and sister it's weird and i don't like it and other than that and her incestuous love i am very fond of her because i like how she has just always been like this supporting character but we will learn in the future that there's times when she's needed and she's a pretty powerful helper so we kind of teased the new mutants a little bit but this issue was like dynamically new mutant-ish without ever actually being new mutancy at all. I feel like everything that happened with Doug and Kitty setting up the new mutants narrative that's set to follow, it just felt kind of like he needed more time in new mutants and really didn't have any ideas in Uncanny for anybody but Storm. I think outside of Storm and Kitty, the only landmark moment for me is when Logan says to the coroner, how about you bend the rules? 
so that they can inspect Kitty's body. That moment for me is like the most Logan-y Logan is early on. No one else had a moment that felt like that in this entire four issues. I actually really did appreciate Logan calling out Colossus for being a broody big baby about everything. And that he basically said, if this is how you're going to act and you're already set in your mind, you literally don't know Kitty at all. And maybe it's better off that you're not together. And I was like, yeah. Also, why does every single... (sighs) These four issues all either mention or we see and talk about Kitty getting married. Can we not... It's just so heteronormatively hypersexualizing of a 15-year-old girl. Why are we marrying off this woman, this child, into being a woman other than it's what we believe is the only thing a woman could want from life? Kitty has given fascinating interests, science, sci-fi. She's a genius with a lot of potential. So why do we spend so much time trying to figure out how to put a ring on it? I don't know. That's the age-old question, but I actually really want to touch on what you said uh, just a moment ago, Nico, that these issues didn't really see a plan for a lot of the X-Men. I think we delve a little bit more into Kurt and his backstory and the things that he does fear. You know, the idea that sometimes he feels like he has to be antagonistic because of his appearance, his family, but Charles, Colossus, Wolverine, Cyclops, nothing happened with them. There was no real big story moments for them, and it felt like they were really had to be sidelined. Granted, we did get a lot of Wolverine, the solo Wolverine series, slash his wedding stint, but still, it would have been nice to, to see those characters more present and have a more active role in the story. This isn't the Storm and Kitty book, as much as Claremont wants to make it to be. <laughs> There's something in what you said that caught my ear immediately. I think now I'm imagining that whatever the idea for the Micronauts four-parter, this, that rogue mystique story, I wonder if these were all originally going to be one-issue stories, or maybe two-issue stories, and the timing of Secret Wars kind of smushed everything up, because this is kind of a wild ride. It's also a very sudden pivot to Doug. Out of nowhere, Doug goes from minor background character to like seven pages of dialogue. From minor background character to revealed mutant. And not in a minor way, either. The implications of Doug's abilities are insane. Like, I I understand what Xavier is saying in that Doug has an extreme passing trait in that his mutant ability to understand languages, whether they're written, oral, or computer can be very easily masked as someone with just a lot of talent. They just has a knack for languages. It's not overtly obvious that that would be a mutant ability. But still, it was a really weird comment that he's better off in the human world when that's not true at all. At this point, with Charles Xavier and the New Mutants, Charles is training them to be able to use their powers, but he's not planning on making the New Mutants graduate to be X-Men. They're not going in the front line to go fight. They're not doing any of that. He's just teaching them. Why would you not want to make sure that Doug is protected and under your care? It was a really weird, like, well, his abilities aren't useful, so no. (laughs) Are we going to talk about how we got to see Emma? Like, I'm surprised Jonah's not going crazy over this. 
Well, I didn't want to. I didn't want to jump ahead because I know we have such great things to talk about. Such great things like <laughs> Scott sending a picture of his scrotum and his naked wife to Charles Xavier. <laughs> Nico, do you have any opinions on that? You know, that was one of my favorite parts when I was reading this issue. I thought a lot of it was kind of fillery and generic, but I kept coming back to that part where Scott sent that photo of himself oh hanging dog next to my, his new wife. Why do we keep talking and, about this? All right. Well, then I guess we should talk about that really moving storm scene. So, Dylan, I think for a lot of storm fans, that moment is a huge pivotal story point. This this moment between Storm and Kitty where they relinquish the idea that she's still the kitten and they accept that she has to grow and Storm has to grow. I feel like anybody who read this as a kid loving Storm had to be like, "No, please don't give up on me, Ro." How did this play out for you? It is a pretty amazing part. Uh, like you said, for people reading it as a kid, they're probably like, oh my god, like, this is my, my, like, big sister slash mom, that's my best friend, but we're, like, becoming slight equals, and Kitty needs to realize that she can't always just rely on Storm to be the one to tell her what to do, and Storm needing to realize that Kitty's not always the one that necessarily needs to be protected or watched over like a child, even though these four issues basically was Kitty being kidnapped because she was a child. It's a very pivotal moment that is a moment that has been recreated throughout the years of very pivotal moments in X-Men history that do slightly focus around Storm and Kitty. And it, it, it is a very special moment because of the bond that those two have. I completely agree with you on that, Dylan. And Nico, something that you said in that Chris does know how to write young, younger women. As much as we're not too happy with the situations they're put in, while I was reading this, I remember getting very angry with Kitty in her not understanding what change means for people in that that's part of life. And that's when I realized... Kitty is a child. She she hasn't learned those life lessons of what change means, what personal change is, what change in dynamic, change in relationship. She didn't, she doesn't know. And when you are a child of split parents and you're away from everything that you used to know and you're thrust into a new life, you do want some stability, the idea that you have can maintain some control. So I empathize and understand what Kitty was saying, and I realized, oh, I'm getting really angry because this is very well written. The idea that Kitty's transition from childhood to adulthood consistently rests on this kind of from Storm to Emma trope. (laughs) Like, oh my, we're doing that again. You mean my power suit business lesbian? I think you mean... Flight attendant power suit business lesbian. That's what she looks like. She looks like a power suit business lesbian that she walks into a building and goes, I own 51% of this company. Oh my god, like Lexi in the final seasons of Melrose Place when she tried to steal D&D advertising out from under Amanda, forcing Amanda to open Woodward advertising? Sure, let's go with that. Yeah, exactly that. Just smile and nod, smile and nod, smile and agree. It's all it's all okay. If you nod, he goes away faster. I wanted to point out, we mentioned Leech earlier uh, when, Nico, you were talking about Callisto and what she's doing to the Morlocks to not necessarily make people like them so much. But you mentioned Leech, and then another Morlock that was in these issues was Healer. 
And both Leech and Healer were in issue 179, and that was actually their first appearance in Marvel Comics. And Leech will, without giving too much away, will become more of an important character in X-Men Comics in coming years and even decades later in comics like Generation X. And Healer will actually become not that important at all, but he has recently became very important in the current Dawn of X books, X-Force. I really crazy love that you found a way to bring it back to what's going on now. I couldn't help but notice the number of ways these issues, for how kind of out of nowhere and maybe even a little bit silly they were, there were parallels between scenes that felt pretty familiar. As a matter of fact, a lot of the Corsair dialogue, I feel like that's still the Corsair dialogue we're getting in books like X-Men and New Mutants. I completely agree. I feel like it's really weird that Cyclops' human pirate dad is a character that I feel like over all the decades that he has shown up from time to time, every writer I feel like has always gotten Corsair and his his depth and just daddy sometimes. And when I say daddy, I mean sexual and literal. And pirate, I just feel like every writer has always written Corsair perfectly. And I like that Corsair is such a well-defined you know, trope in a good way that we're able to point to that character. It's also important to note that we're going to be able to point to another very big character very soon. The X-Men are about to walk through a gateway that is going to dynamically shift the future of the Marvel Universe forever. Secret Wars, one million percent rewrote the book on Marvel. It didn't change the X-Men quite the same way, but goddamn, this gateway changes shit. So I'm continuing our exciting discussion with Maddie, and we've talked a bit about his understanding of the X-Men culturally speaking through the animated series, and we've talked a bit about his knowledge of the Dark Phoenix saga, but everybody's kind of got that error that pulled them in. Everybody's got that period as an X-Fan that kind of defines their fandom, and you can kind of extrapolate a lot about how a person comes to understand the team. And if I'm not mistaken, Maddie, for you, that period of time is the reload. Definitely. For me, that was... That was really a time for me that I was able to say, you know, I actually do want to take a bit of a vested interest in this. And a lot of that really goes back to, for a lot of people, it's more astonishing than anything. For me, it's actually uncanny. Chuck Austin. Chuck Austin. Stone Cold Chuck Austin's run on Uncanny X-Men. 316 or whatever. 316 or whatever. No, it's 411 to about, in the 420s. Oh, I was was doing... Stone Cold for you. Stone Cold. See, I was never a wrestling person. Me neither. No, that's why I'm a soft boy. Do you Uh, smell what The Rock's preparing in the kitchen? I I live in an apartment. I smell what everyone prepares in every kitchen. I fully... You know what? I feel like you can always smell if somebody's made sausage. I... Part of a big reason why I don't make a lot of sausage, Mm -hmm. and then probably the vegetarian girlfriend, and then probably heart disease... Do you know what else I don't do? I don't make fish in the microwave. And I'll tell you why. Because you're not a terrorist. That's what you do to people you don't like. That's what you do at the office when you're about to leave with no notice. You put in some fish and you put in a cup of pine salt. You know what? And that's and I want to say that they work well together because, you know, a lot of a lot of citrus on fish mm-hmm, sort mm-hmm. of deal. And Greek. Then, 
Very Greek Mediterranean. I was always more of the mentality of take a fistful of like gummy candies and like clog up the only toilet. No, like I always think put some Splenda in the gas tank and not sugar. And I'll tell you why not sugar. Because I feel like using Splenda is a little bit more insulting. Well, and frankly, it's 2020. We don't consume sugar anymore. Stevia, maybe. Agave nectar, sure. But sugar, not in this house. Not in this house. Not in this lifetime. So Chuck Austin. So Chuck Austin and the House of X. Had a pretty fantastic run in Uncanny. And a funny thing about it is it took me until much later than it came out to get to it because I just liked the covers. That was my earliest introduction to actual issue-to-issue reading was you giving me a fistful of 420-somethings and saying, hey, read these. And I was like, all right, cool. And then I just drew every cover for a long period of time and then stumbled on them again. And I was like, okay, well, why don't you actually like give this a go? And it was one of my first real exposures to a larger host of characters that I wasn't immediately familiar with. Nightcrawler in particular, a lot of a lot of Nightcrawler and of that era in the reload, I got a lot of Lorna. I got Havoc. I started to understand the intricacies of the summer relationships as they are non-romantic and still equally convoluted. And it was it was a really weird time that culminated into me crash landing into Grant Morrison's new X-Men. Uh. And, and all of the subsequent matter, the Academy X and Hellions of it all. And that was really the heyday for me. That was when I stopped reading graphic novels of stories that were years you know not out of print of course but so many years later and began reading currently or semi-currently for the first time i do just want to mention that ladies and gentlemen he is taken but he does actually bear kind of a striking resemblance to julian keller there will always be a part of me that revels in that you were just talking about grant morrison's new x-men i was i was i was and and boy was that something and and once again something i was so thankful to be able to read in a compendium in its entire as somebody who is who is admittedly only recently coming into establishing pull lists and and getting week to week and saying why is x-men number five delayed oh (laughs) several of them are delayed oh that's fun this has never happened this doesn't line up with that chart in the back of the book that tells me it says this would be here today but man at this point having become a little disenchanted by the x-men films by the original fox trilogy x1 through three having having seen you have a mini conniption Walking out of X3 together, walking out of X3 together, you losing your mind and me thinking, it was kind of fine. It was, an okay, it was an okay movie. You can actually hear my recounting that same story in an episode of HTML from about a year ago. Uh, our Dark Phoenix run, She's Coming, phoenixlegacy.html. You can hear me recount the the recovery period it took to survive The Last Stand. And then the subsequent conversation about the film Dark Phoenix that actually ran longer than the film Dark Phoenix by about 12 minutes. I don't have it in me to watch Dark Phoenix. I don't know that I ever will. Still have not seen Age of Apocalypse and you cannot convince me otherwise. Oscar Isaacs is a great many number of things. Your eyes are rolling towards the center and back of your head and so I see where you're at with it. I understand the social consciousness but he is not Apocalypse. No, he's glorious. And he's glorious and Apocalypse is too and a lot of your friends would admittedly like to screw him. Uh, if, if nobody has has listened to the, to the FMK episode of We are Krakoa at Access for Podcast. Uh, Just scream. Just scream and run screaming. It turns out every one of my co-workers on this show really wants to fuck serial killers. That said, 
Oscar Isaacs would make the bomb shit Vulcan. Ooh, he would. And he could make it interesting. Super interesting. He has daddy issues. Well, I mean, don't we all? About daddy issues, we have to talk about House of M. Daddy issues is the ultimate segue to talking about Pietro. Uh, Pietro, forever taking the backseat, just just cucked by his whole life. His sister destroys an entire reality and strips most of mutant kind of their abilities. And Pietro just can't get it up because of his dad. And that's sad. And, you know, when you think about the bigger picture of House of M, you know, they, they tried to say that it was all Pietro pushed Wanda, but Wanda did it. It was Wanda. Wanda did it. This is probably the thing I'm most excited to ask you about. Yes. You read so much New X-Men Academy X because you actually like were that age you were like roughly 14 15 when that was coming out i was pretty specifically high school age so where whereas i see that i have reading its current run as dawn of x uh, new mutants i have a cognizance to to the combination of the classic new mutants and to generation x titles that i i teetered with and had understood the iconography of and read individual runs and issues of but couldn't quite put a put a name to the book per se so for that matter New X-Men Academy X was really my New Mutants because it was specific to my age group, my generation, if you would. There was there was a lot of me that felt a little bit like Surge in in, in not being able to control this static quality of, of you know, what, what it is to be 14. You know, I never almost killed all of my friends in a danger room, but that's because I had no access to a danger room. And slightly less access to electrical powers. Those didn't kick in until 16. Realistically, if you develop any earlier than that, your parents really need to be there for a talk. And mine are great, but you can't just, you know, willy-nilly get a 14-year-old on board with having mutant abilities. I mean, (laughs) you'd hope. You would hope. Now, did you feel pushed off the books when you found out that, like, this entire cast was just discarded? That, That hurt, and that hurt in a way that I didn't really understand because I had not really realized that I was a reader at that point until not understanding how crossovers were the first crossover I I was privy to was House of M because suddenly I was reading House of M crossover for Hellions and for New Mutants and it was a completely different universe it was the same cast utilizing and facilitating different roles and a different fabric and I, I didn't have nearly the access to Google that we do today and whatever it was and I remember saying what's this what's happening you're oh house of m which brings me to house of m i suppose and and by the time we get to decimation and everybody dies which just everybody dies pretty much where i fell off because every point of interest was just snatched do you know i actually really do i wound up with my books piling up around this point and kind of having to force myself back into it after a while in december of last year we were in some fun episodes kind of taking a look at these periods in time and i talked a little bit about it there didn't get into it too much but i would find myself falling off of the books from time to time if i didn't enjoy a whole bunch of stuff and i did feel pretty betrayed by this era i felt like all of the characters i liked were suddenly dead and the ones that weren't dead were just suddenly missing and it was just hard to sink my teeth back into it i think x-men legacy by mike carey was what pulled me out but that was a long road away that was and so funny to hear that out loud as a tremendous fan of the unwritten probably my number one mike carey work to to realize that that x-men legacy was in fact Mike Carey. Guys, before the X-Men walk over into Battle World, do you guys have any thoughts on the four issues we read today? 
My only thoughts are, I hope that these four issues and, I mean, previous issues that we've read before this episode and even issues of Marvel Team Up with Kitty, I feel like these four issues are hopefully the end of Kitty being so innocent and such a child and such a liability and that it's the beginning of Kitty being more of an ex-man instead of an ex-brat. Well, better an ex-brat than an ex-baby, I guess. <laughs> and until the next time we see Kitty Pride hanging out in the pages of New Mutants while the X-Men proper are lost into secret war, Dylan, where can everybody find you online? Everybody can find me on Facebook at my X-Men Facebook group that is called House of X. And you can also find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everyone find your furry little face? Sending salacious photos to my professors while I'm on my honeymoon. Or... (laughs) Oh, did anybody else catch that panel where Scott took that picture where he was hanging dong next to his new bride and he was like, Yeah, Dylan, what did you think of that? I, I'm gonna leave. I'm no, you can't, because we still have to find out where I, you can find me. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram <laughs> at Peak Jonah. I- Nico, where can everybody find you? <laughs> Honk! You guys can find me all over this network if Joey lets me stay on shows like HTML where we're covering Star Wars with these crazy goons along with my amazing husband Kevo, Jonah's boyfriend, everybody's favorite guy in the whole wide fucking world. You can also find us covering We Are Krakoa, the modern X-Men feed, every Monday right here on X's for Podcast. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram, Nico Action, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, or my web presence like my own comic, Kid Riot at KidRiotComics.com, or our X-Men news resource, We Are Krakoa at WeAreKrakoa.com. And until next time, when the wars are secret, the mutants are new, and the symbiote costumes aren't named Venom yet, nor is Null even a fucking thought. This fucking Null thing! Like, this came out of nowhere, right? Like, this Null thing? Nowhere. Out of fucking nowhere. Stop laughing. It's true. One day, I go on the internet, and everybody's like, there's a symbiote god, and I'm like, um, no, there isn't. And everybody's like, yeah, there is. Donnie Kate said so. And I'm like, oh, well, if Donnie Wahlberg said so. And everybody's like, yeah, his name's Null. And I'm like... You, he doesn't have a name and they're like no his name's Null and I'm like so he doesn't have a name and they're like no it's Null and I'm like so he doesn't have a name and they're like no you idiot it's Null with a K and I'm like that's weird who spells Null by putting a K at the end X-Men so all of a sudden have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> Oh, well, so Donnie Cates is writing this unbelievable cosmic saga, and part of it involves putting the Venom symbiote back with Eddie Brock after it spent some time with Flash Thompson under the name Agent Venom, who was a U.S. soldier that worked with the Avengers and spent some time on the Secret Avengers with my precious cat in Britain. And so there you go. Now it's kind of x men Just let me have it. And then Eddie Brock, because of the movie with Tom Hardy and the Sony and the ka-ching, ka-ching. So now all of a sudden Eddie Brock has the symbiote again and it's radically, dynamically a different story. And Null, the symbiote god, came before everything. And like, because now Donny Cates has taken over Thor. Now the Null symbiote god intersects with Gore the god killer what the fuck i'm so anyway i actually really can't wait to read it to be honest with you it sounds fascinating but like also there's a god of symbiotes
<laughs> really? The last time I checked in with Symbiotes, Pete Milligan had just made Toxin. <laughs> Clunk. Okay, Bye. so until next time, we'll see ya. Bye.